Hello and welcome back to Primer, a podcast about all things Amazon. I'm Alex Press, joined as ever by my producer, Sarah Hurd. Before we get into the conversation with Mark McGurl, this week's guest, there's some news related to one of our prior guests. Chris Smalls, who you'll remember was fired by Amazon in the early days of the pandemic, not long after he began speaking up about inadequate precautions in his warehouse, JFK 8, which is in Staten Island. He's been part of an effort to organize an independent union at that warehouse and other nearby smaller facilities. That union is called the Amazon Labor Union. A few days ago, Chris and his fellow organizers filed with the National Labor Relations Board to hold a union election. As he talked about when he was on the show, he and his fellow Amazon workers have spent months outside of that warehouse speaking with workers and getting them interested in unionizing. Now they have enough union cards signed by those workers to file for an election. The NLRB requires 30% of workplaces employees sign cards. ALU has met that threshold. Where this goes from here is unclear at the moment. Amazon, as we've talked about again and again on the show, has immensely high turnover. And also the company massively inflated the bargaining unit in Bessemer, Alabama, when the RWDSU filed for an election there. So they added a lot of workers, right, to the numbers um, that would need to vote in that election and the numbers that would be needed to win. Um, So this turnover rate is a huge obstacle. It's hard to overstate how big of an obstacle it is. Many union organizers don't file with fewer than a clear majority of workers having signed union cards. You know, some union organizers even don't file till 75 or 80 percent of the bargaining unit has signed a card because generally you lose some of those numbers during the lead up to the election as the employer kicks its anti-union campaign into high gear. That isn't to say I know what will happen with the ALU, but it is to give some context on what the road ahead looks like. It's hard to say how this process is going to go, right? It might be possible that you can imagine some people sign cards and no longer work at that warehouse. Some people work at that warehouse um, and got hired after this union filing happened. Um, But what is important is that, you know, there is some number of Amazon workers at JFK 8 who want a union. Um, And there's no reason they shouldn't have one, right? So that's just something to keep an eye on. That's sort of the news of the past week um, as it regards Amazon and worker organizing. Um, The Teamsters also are in the process of holding election on new leadership. um, And given that they've committed to organizing Amazon workers, that's also um, something to pay attention to, right? Because it's a matter of whether the sort of the current existing leadership's backed slate wins or whether the more reform-minded Um, people win. That could have an effect on what that campaign looks like. So those are just some things in the world, the ecosystem of Amazon worker organizing. Now to this week's episode. I spoke with Mark McGurl, who's a literature professor at Stanford, because he has a new book out called Everything and Less, the novel in the age of Amazon. Mark's previous book, The Program Era, looked at how MFA programs have influenced or even in some ways determined what writing in the United States looks like post-World War II. This one attempts to do something similar, examining Amazon's effect on literature. Not just or even specifically in the sense of its effect on the publishing industry, but on the actual types of writing being produced, the content of fiction, genre, sentence structure, length, things like that. It's a provocation, an assertion of how structures can change the actual style of art. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Mark. So, Mark, thanks so much for coming on Primer. I'm very happy to be here. So to start, let's just lay out a little bit of the broader economic picture of Amazon before we get into your book, which is about literature and its effect um, in the age of Amazon. So books make up a pretty small amount of Amazon's total business. 
less than 7% of the company's revenue right now comes from books, but they're foundational to the company's beginnings. Amazon started obviously as a bookseller. It's achieved dominance in that industry. About half of all paperback and hardback purchases in the United States are made on Amazon, as well as just about every ebook purchase via Amazon's Kindle, which has about 6 million ebooks. Amazon also owns Audible and Goodreads. So here it's it's central within the industry of book publishing. Yes, absolutely. And it didn't exist 25 years ago. Incredibly. Yeah, an enormous shift in what that industry looks like. But in your book, interestingly, you talk about the other ways that fiction is central to Amazon. For one, Bezos's now ex-wife, Mackenzie Scott, is a novelist. I believe she was I believe she was a research assistant for Toni Morrison at one point. Um, and she was there from the start, creating the business with Jeff. We're on a first name basis now, me and Bezos. <laughs> um, Bezos has said that it was reading the remains of the day that sort of inspired him to start Amazon. And Mark, you also write of Amazon's interest in narrative, in world building tales about itself. Bezos as protagonist, of course. Um, you know, it struck me in writing about Amazon and reading about its sort of or- origin um, that one of the founding tales of the company that Bezos started it in his garage is a very well planned out myth. Uh, right. You know, he was already a rich Wall Street trader, and then he bought a house with the garage when he and Mackenzie moved to Washington State to start Amazon um, so that right. he could then tell people he started his business in his garage, right. <laughs> um, which is the classic scrappy founder myth of the tech industry. Yeah, no, yeah, that's great. So it had already become sort of self-reflexive, fictionalizing enterprise. And I think that that's deeply embedded in the company, too, that you should always be living your myth. Yeah. So I want you to sort of expand on that for people who obviously most people won't have read the book yet, though they should. Um, So at this really DNA level, what's the relationship between fiction and Amazon? Well, I mean... The 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 primary fact to begin with, um, and not that not that it's a, a, a simple fact, but that this but that the company began as a bookstore, and for a long time the observation has been made that that attachment to books was purely incidental, that books just happen to have certain qualities that make them ideal uh, uh, for an internet business in the early days of internet and of e-commerce. Uh, they're relatively durable. Um, they're roughly the same shape. Uh, um, there are so many millions of, of them that even the largest bookstore could, a physical bookstore could never have even a tiny fraction uh, of, of all the books out there so that they have these sort of convenient, oh, also they're also tracked. They already were by the ISBN number. That's a crucial fact too. So there was already a tracking mechanism native to books. So all of these sort of things go to, well, like, oh, it could have been this, but books just made a lot of sense. And I wouldn't dispute that account whatsoever. I just wanted to add to it the surplus of interests surrounding the fact that we begin as a bookstore, employee number two or four or whatever Mackenzie Scott was, uh, is a, a very powerfully uh, uh, aspiring novelist and then ultimately a successful one. Uh, Jeff himself, an inveterate reader and consumer of science fiction of various kinds, uh, including his obsession with Star Trek. Um, and so this is somebody who really f- from a young age is sort of steeped in the American epic, you know, space faring commercial, uh, c- commerce building, uh, narrative. And I don't think that that entirely goes away, even when you're constructing an enterprise that 
where the bottom line nitty gritty issues of quantity are always always going to be at issue, but there's always going to be a story you tell about that enterprise. And so I just started thinking of Amazon. Granted, it's it's partially metaphorical to do so, but it is kind of like a science fiction epic come to, sprung to life. Uh, with all of the incredible enthusiasm for technological innovation on Bezos's and on the company's part, um, uh, that that that's certainly one way to look at it. And then we become bit players uh, in in its own narrative. Right. So in your book, you're exploring the question of what Amazon's rise means for literature. So not just the book publishing industry, which I think gets covered a lot more, but actually the substance of what's in fiction. So why don't we start broadly? What is the house style of novels in the age of Amazon? It would be hard to say that there's one house style. It's much more of a, uh, I, I would call it a, a sort of increased market sensitivity. Um, so a sensitivity to what readers want. Uh, an, an imperative to serve the reader, to think of the reader as a customer. On, on, on some level, that seems obvious, but for a long time in literary history, certainly in its sort of more prestigious uh, uh, levels, um, that idea that you're a servant of your reader was sort of anathema to the to, to the very idea uh, of 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 some of a work being literature as opposed to something else, mere entertainment. A lot of pressure is put on put on authors now to serve a market in a way that's blindingly obvious, in a way that's always been the case. So there's an aspect of Amazon which is an intensification of, of certain themes in the history of print capitalism. Um, so I wouldn't say that there's a house style, except that if one is looking specifically at works that have been self-published via Amazon, because that's one of its more extraordinary innovations is so-called Kindle direct publishing, uh, by whose means hundreds of thousands, if not millions of works have been self-published in the last uh, several years. Um, if you want to go that route and if you want to make a living, uh, all of the successful writers who are doing so through that means are write writers of genre fiction, of highly recognizable, what are sometimes called formulae uh, uh, genres, right? That's certainly the keynote uh, of literature in our time, although that doesn't necessarily add, add up to a prescription about exactly how you should write your novel or a house style for the novel. All it, all, all it says is that there's a, a remarkable pressure being put on any writer who wants to ask his or her reader to work for what they have to offer, as opposed to be having it be given to them um, as the person who is being served by the author. Right. I definitely want to get to the self-publishing arm and I want to talk about genre, um, but you mentioned service, right? And at one point in the book, you even point out that there are many ways you can give feedback on what you're reading on Kindle, including you can say not just that there are typos or mistakes or missing pages, but actually that the work is disappointing. Um, so as far as which was shocking to me, I didn't know that. Um, so just bear with me. I want to give people a little bit of a broader picture here of the shift you're pointing to, or at least arguing exists. Um so you're saying, you know, e-commerce has changed what Americans want out of literature. Service is the key word. You say that from Amazon's perspective, books are not so much an object or even text as the bearer of a service. The author becomes entrepreneur and service provider. The story you tell here is familiar probably to some people. Deindustrialization shifts the United States to a service economy largely, and an emphasis on management theorists, theorists comes on culture, right? So they start 
focusing on corporate culture as a means of keeping labor costs down by trying to imbue workers right with a sense of meaning and investment in their work and in their company. Um, importantly, much service work is typically classed as feminine, lower pay and so on. And that plays out in what literature does as well, what readers expect it to do. What did people used to think literature was meant to do or what did they want out of it versus this sense of it as providing a service? I think that people have always looked to literature for what they look to it for now. I don't think that that there's that we're looking at something fundamentally new. What we're really looking at is a certain kind of pressure being put on a certain version, a high modernist version of writing, most powerfully associated with, say, James Joyce or William Faulkner, like notoriously difficult writers who who you seem to be working for them when you're reading their work rather than uh, working for you. I think that readers have always looked uh, for, uh, uh, say, an, an existential supplement, which is one concept I talk about in the book, uh, an addition to life. The, li- the lives we read about in the novel are, are, are almost by definition compressed lives. They are lives that have been sort of made into epitomes, which we uh, can absorb in a night or two, an evening or two, or a week. Uh, and then we've had some version of experience um, uh, granted, a mediated experience is not the same as real life. On the other hand, clearly there are millions of us who need that uh, need that kind of supplement, and we, in some sense, always have. Uh, it's just that our, it's just that the the sort of rise and then acceleration and now domination of a service model of economy has brought with it, I think, uh, an extra sort of skepticism about the high modernist experimental literary project where you're asking your reader to work. Uh, I, I know that there are writers out there who still do that, but it's a pretty, I don't know, I, th- I, I sense very little patience out there in the world uh, for that model. Uh, and, and I wouldn't say that, oh, this is Amazon's doing. You always have to be sort of careful with the question of like, billiard ball causality here. I mean, for, for for this book, it's as much about using Amazon to illuminate the moment that we're in, in, in terms of literary history, than, than stipulating strong causal chains between Amazon saying, you must write your book like this. In some ways, Amazon is extraordinarily passive about what literature should look like. They don't, on some level, they don't care. It's like somebody wants this. Somebody might want this. That's the only salient factor. Uh, There's not a lot of strong judgment uh, on the part of the company itself, so much as the offering of a a, a platform um, through which writers might might provide a service to readers. Right. I mean, and on that topic of its passivity, its openness to all types of books, you know, there's a proliferation of genres going on on Amazon's platform. You know, you mentioned that there are some thousands of genre lists on the site, um, which of course is a fun little marketing measure as well in that in that a author will rise to the top of a very obscure genre and then post about it and share so that's great yeah no, of course yeah yes you've got 10,000 you've got about 10,000 chances to be a best right that's great odds uh, or at least better <laughs> but then anyway and a liter believe me a literary academic who writes literary criticism deeply depends upon that sense of you right. Know. This book may even reach the top of uh... a. <laughs> yeah. So some of the types of literature you go through in the book is quite niche. Um, there are the works of Chuck Tingle, for instance, which include titles like Bigfoot Pirates Haunt My Balls or the realm of self-published adult baby diaper lover erotica, 
which you write may be the quintessential Amazonian genre of literature. So capital here is finding new distinctions, generating novel niches, right? And then they're being filled, right? It's recognizing, again, it's a platform. That is what Amazon has often argued is what it does. It just offers a facilitating place for, say, adult baby diaper um, lovers. Um, so where does genre fit into this picture? This is a huge part of the book, yeah. um, arguments around genre. And how do those more niche areas or what we would traditionally think of as niche areas fit into that picture? What's their importance too? So the, the salience of genre just started to hit me as I start, as I really near the beginning of my research uh, on all of this. And then at some point it occurred to me that genre, which, you know, has an ancient history, uh, in culture going, you know, certainly goes back to the, 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 uh, ancient Greece culture profoundly, uh, interested in questions of generic distinction and genre distinction, a comedy being different from a tragedy, et cetera. But it, it occurred to me at some point that that's like a, that genre distinctions are 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 a version native to the literary field of product differentiation uh, and a market market segmentation. They they didn't begin as the same thing, but they become uh, so so. And the and the more I thought about that, and the more I looked at those who were succeeding on Amazon as self published writers, they were all writers of genre fiction. It, uh, I, I thought that that, m- that that must be the sort of uh, center of the phenomenon, so much so that that I could sort of venture the argument that that for, from the Amazonian perspective, literary fiction is another genre of genre fiction. It has an audience. Uh, it has certain distinct qualities. In fact, it might even be a little bit more unpredictable in its form than uh, traditional genres like crime fiction or science fiction or horror or what have you. Um, but at the end of the day, it's a certain kind of novel that has a certain kind of readership and certain kind of readers who like it, and thus it falls into a slot. But then you look even more closely, and then you realize that, wait a minute, Amazon isn't just working with traditional literary genres as they've been handed down um, from the academy or even the publishing business, that they've developed a sort of organ, you know, organizing system that uh, that that really permutates genres. So all you have to do is keep adding modifiers um, uh, to, to, to the genre that you're writing in. And that's what you see. That's why the erotica space, you know, not a lot of traditional literary value in that space. Okay. Right, right. Um, but it is fascinating for sort of drawing to the, to the very surface, this sort of logic of, per, of generic permutation. It's almost as though it's like, you know, when you could watch a plant grow, it's almost as though to look into the erotica space, you can imagine that you're sort of seeing genres sort of molt and recombine and add qualities as, as these writers sort of seek, seek out that sort of niche kink that somebody might be interested in. And there might be a, probably fairly small community of readers who like it, but here they have a literature to sort of, uh, uh, that'll help them go there. And uh, on one level, that's very much unto itself. That's erotica. It's a very particular thing. On the other hand, it did seem to me to point to a broader logic of the, 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 the logic of not only of generic distinction, but of the sort of, uh, but of the, uh, but of the permutation over time of genres, permutation, recombination, uh, 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 et cetera, where the developmental logic of literature is starting to look like 
you know, like some sort of algorithm or program unfolding, you know? Right, right. That makes sense. Just a multiplication of, you know, sort of when you get those t-shirt ads served you on Facebook, they're like, my daughter is named Alex. She lives in Pennsylvania and I'll kill you if she goes near you. And you're like, wait a minute. (laughs) That's no, no one is, that's not a real shirt, but that's just, that's just been algorithmically engineered in case I, me specifically, if I want that. Um, So it's very similar with the, yeah, I mean, the works of Chuck Tingle, for example, um, just an endless sort of proliferation of types of things that you could sort of mash together. Yeah. It's just that at the beginning of the 20th century with the rise of literary modernism, the the idea was installed certainly in the academy that that ge- that generic identification uh, as something more specific than say a novel was pop- maybe a problem that like if if you could be identified as 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 working in a certain genre then you then there's a sort of deficit of originality or unpredictability in your work um uh and it's true like what genre is james joyce's ulysses it's like you know it's, right. It's complicated. We call it a novel, but like, man, is it a weird novel? What, what we have in Amazon is just like a de- deafness to that argument because at the end of the day, certain people like to read certain things and are going to buy certain books that reflect those tastes. And right. um, sure, there are still hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people who li- who really do want to read uh, the latest work of prestige literary fiction, they, they're still there, but then there are these masses of other kinds of readers. And, the, and my book just wants to sort of bring them into the picture um, so that we get a more complete sense of what literary life is these days. And so at the broader level, um, there are types of books that actually a lot of people read that are not, say, literary fiction. And so two important types of books that you go through at in-depth in the book are romance and epic. Um, so you write that romance paints life as gendered, as generative, and as generic, and as lived in conditions of radical disparities of power. Um, there's all sorts of interesting things you go into in the book about what romance does, this sort of um, self-enclosure into the space of the family, right, the pairing, versus the broader world that one can feel very powerless over to affect. Um, Epic, too, is sort of this other parent, this twin. Um, or So I just wanted to ask you about the significance of romance which, you know, as you've said, doesn't really get taken that seriously in a lot of um, sort of literary studies. Or if you ask sort of the maybe what would be seen as the snobs of the literary world, they wouldn't yeah. pay much attention. But it does inc- it does incredible sales. Right. So it is relevant to the conversation. So I wanted to just ask you about those two sort of structuring types of novels. Sure. I mean, to, to start with the romance, I just find it fascinating because you're you're quite right that like literally and there there are exceptions made for science fiction and and detective fiction and uh you know in terms of literary value and intellectual worth but romance has just been you know obliterated as even a possible vehicle for something that's interesting uh to think about and read um it hasn't always been the case i mean as i talk about in the book you know jane austen is a writer of romance novels and when she was writing, it was possible both to do the work of the romance novelist. In other words, you introduce a couple, if we're talking about Pride and Prejudice, and they hate each other at first, and he's such a jerk. And But, you know, through a process of getting to know each other, they end up together, right? And he's the original alpha billionaire in literary history. Not the original, actually, but he's an early <laughs> alpha billionaire in literary history in a way that 
that, that, that tradition extends to the present. But what doesn't extend to the present is the ability to say, oh, wow, this Jane Austen, she's such a charming and pleasant and pleasurable writer to read, who we also is, you know, who we also think of as a, a transcendent figure in literary history, uh, just for the sheer, uh, you know, f- uh, formal perfection of her works and the majestic third person perspective she takes uh, on human folly and her, the sense of warmth and distance. So we, we used to be able to see that romance could be a, a romance could be a masterpiece. Beginning in the 20th century, that just absolutely collapses. But romance doesn't collapse. It remains numerically, overwhelmingly the most popular genre. Um, and there are, are some people who read, you know, a few romances a year, but then it has a large number of devotees does that genre and, and, and they read in a very interesting way. Other people have written about this. I don't, I don't do too much with this, but, but, you know, there are people who read four or 500 romances a year, right? So this is a form of literary consumption that's quite distinct from working your way through the latest challenging literary fiction, and, and so I just wanted to remember the romance, you know, because <laughs> um, uh, it's just the backdrop against which so much uh, against which literary history moves. And, and then also the literary historical present. Um, the one interesting little wrinkle um, that I've sort of realized literally since I finished the book is, um, is Sally Rooney is an interesting figure in terms of uh, who has described her own works as romance novels. Of a certain kind, but but that's a crucial thing of a certain kind. So that there's there's perceptible differences between Sally Rooney and a Harlequin romance or Fifty Shades of Grey. God knows. Um, nonetheless, she's quite right that that they uh, they do structure, and this is becomes politically interesting because of her left her stated left politics, and then her literary form is the romance, which is always making things intimate rather than more public it can seem at least that seems like the, the the way that genre goes human beings are most interesting when they're alone together you know doing intimate things and having intimate conversations as opposed to the sort of uh you know p- p- public persona um that we all ad- ad- adopt too so anyway so just all of which is to say that yeah it's a big huge fascinating story the history and fate uh, of the romance and there have been some great critics um, who have written on, uh, on the romance. And I just wanted to add a bit uh, by sort of attaching romance to the general, general literary system by remembering that it's the norm, that a romance novel is the, is the, is the, is the average novel that somebody is reading right now. I'm glad you brought up Sally Rooney. Cause actually, I mean, to a friends, I always joke that like, oh, well, Sally Rooney is writing soap operas for people like us, like 30-year-old socialists in cities. Uh, <laughs> and, I, you know, I, I personally love, I like Sally Rooney's writing. Also, I think I, yeah, that's, um, I, yeah. Hard I not always to say I don't it. get what the whole big deal is. I just say, thank you, Sally. And I read the book and I can't put it back down and then I'm done. I move on. Um, but people, I think, get very worked up. And in part, it's why is she selling so well while well, she's writing romances? She has that gift of relatively ordinary people you get involved with them and you kind of want to know what's going on um she 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 has that in spades she's not a demanding writer in any way so so good example of like you know the, the writer of them there are there are sort of the it writers of, of of world literature right now that pose some challenges canal scarred like sentence by sentence it's easy but like oh wait i gotta read this seven volume thing 
Um, Sally Rooney's pretty easy. You know what I mean? She goes down really, really, really easy. It just intrigued me just when I was reading an interview with her and she just brought it up herself. She's like, these are romance novels. And she's like, and I'm proud to claim that affiliation. I'm not going to try to hold myself above it. And I, I, as you know, somebody who had incidentally been thinking a lot about the history of the genre, I was like, okay, that's an interesting moment of lucid self-reflection on the part of a writer who feels herself, you know, torn between a certain set of political beliefs and then as her latest novel lays out, a difficulty in manifesting them in formal literary terms um, that aren't more of the same, more or less bourgeois entertainment. Right. Um, and so speaking of Sally Rooney, I did also want to bring up another type of writing, a sort of related type of writing that is taken very seriously in the literary circles, right? Um, which is autofiction, um, a type of book that seems to be proliferating all the time, right? It's the, every book I'm, that people are talking about in certain circles of mine, you know, seems to be the latest work of autofiction. And you note in the book um, that autofiction is not dissimilar from other existing genre fiction. Um, you note that it features, quote, beta intellectuals who, while well-equipped to interrogate the meaning of love, can be as problematic in their way in their way as an abusive alpha, um, such as the guy in Fifty Shades of Grey. Um, and not only for their disappointing feebleness. Examples would be here like Tao Lin's Taipei, Ben Lerner's um, latest book. The men in these books seize the historical privilege of romantic indecision and wield it as a kind of soft power over the attractive ladies whose opinions they ambiguously respect. You add they don't want to whip them just to waste their time. I don't really have a question here. I, ju I just wanted to talk. <laughs> you just wanted to read yeah, that. Yeah, I just wanted to talk about that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that was, you know, that's, that that passage is in one of the codas to one of the chapter where I'm, you know, sort of self-consciously taking a flight of, you know, like it, it, if we use genre usually is, you know, uh, readers look for works in a given genre. Authors know that they're writing in a, or intending to write in a given genre. But there's another way of thinking about genre as an analytical tool. So like, oh, let me look at all these sort of books and see if I can gather together characteristics that make them seem the same, or at least to have a shared project. Mm -hmm. And it's just occurred to me as, as I was reading, um, not all, you know, uh, autofiction, certainly, um, uh, but a lot of, a lot of those works um, and specifically a lot of the works from that sp specific period around 2011 and the years immediately following, I was like, you know, it just sort of occurred to me that there's a li literary fictional sort of counterpart to the alpha billionaire romance. The alpha billionaire, like the alpha billionaire, he's a billionaire, he's super aggressive, um, et cetera. And then like, I just started noticing that there are lots of books that have kind of the opposite guy at their center. Mm -hmm. um, and that this seemed to reflect, and interestingly, not that this isn't, this isn't romance fiction, this is literary fiction, but it seemed to me in various ways, they at least want one to, con to converge. I mean, on the most, in the most basic way, you could say that there's sort of a system wide popular and high literary meditation on masculinity. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that in a way, once you say it that way, it's like clear in the culture in general is not clear, you know, um, in the, in the Me Too moment, what, what to, and there are various views. So the alpha billionaire version is, it's, it's more complicated than this, but it's basically reconstructing that sort of, uh, 
old school domineering version of a man uh, uh, getting what he wants mm -hmm. uh, and you're and you learning to love it versus the what I call the beta intellectual romance, which is just a way of getting at that the that that, that the main characters of these novels um, are. Um, are, are, are characterologically just the opposite. They're completely indecisive. Uh, they have trouble holding down a job. They don't know if they really like you. They, it's just like point by point refutation of the alpha billionaire. And I was like, I have to at least speculate on, and let's, let's invent a genre term. And then what that points us to, I think most importantly, uh, is indeed this larger question of like literature wants to, try to figure out masculinity in 2021 and it's not really doing a good job because it has all these scattered sort of meditations on the problem basically right <laughs> um okay so we can jump out of these specific genre questions i had i want so let's get back to sort of the the economics of amazon and book publishing um so you referenced earlier self-publishing via kindle direct publishing um now when i saw this book was coming out um, you know, I think I talked to a couple people and one friend asked, I think what people, what comes to mind when we talk about Amazon's effect on publishing, which is, you know, there's people who were doing well or who work in publishing houses who you know are, hate Amazon with a vengeance, obviously. Um, and then there's sort of the counter, which is authors who resent the gatekeeping and the credentialism and the social clicks that exist in the publishing world. And some of those authors, some of those writers argue that Amazon, you know, opened up a route to self-publishing. Um, Kindle was launched in 2007. Um, and as you write, I didn't know this. Um, it was inspired by a novel in which the character has a quote unquote portable mother of a sort that resembles kind of a Kindle. Um, that book is Neil Stevenson's 1995 novel, The Diamond Age or A Young Lady's Illustrated Primer. I read that all out to say that, no, that is not why I named the show Primer, though it would be very clever if that was the case. Um, so I'm just coming clean on that. Um, Amazon also has a dozen imprints of its own. So what's the story here about this self-publishing kind of revolution that's going on, the Kindle, Amazon's imprints, um, and the proliferation of what you call towards the end of the book, you have a chapter on quote unquote surplus fiction. It, it, it's an interesting story. And I would say that it's one that it was really hard for me to get a hold of because I think it was transforming as I was researching and writing the book. So I think if you tuned in 2013, 2014, there was this great sense of, uh, of liberation and of, uh, uh, of self-published writers sort of having their moment. And Amazon had given them this tech, the, the, these tools. Um, and they had had a rough time with traditional publishing. And so, aha, I thumb my nose at you, mainstream publishing. I have this avenue to success. And in, you know, a handful of cases, this is quite, quite true. My sense is that over the last few years, that, 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 that case where self-published writers are, are, are almost spokespeople for Amazon, I think that's diminishing. I think that the people who've tried to make their living f f as self-published writers on Amazon have, have inevitably begun to notice how in its own way, uh, 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 forceful and authoritarian a gatekeeper Amazon is. Um, uh, that that you know that that it's not just a world of creative freedom that it also immediately imposes on you um, 
uh, some burdens, not least of which, if you want to be a successful self-published writer, you're, the, the, the kind of quantity you're going to need to produce is truly terrifying. So it is said, it's said uh, uh, in various places that the, that, that the ideal rate at which you would come out with a new novel is every three months. If you want to keep, if you want to maintain your relation to your audience and give them what they want on a regular enough basis so that they don't forget you. So it's very similar to like, if you, you know, if you have a podcast, everyone tells you, you better put it out on the same day every week or, you know, have a regular schedule, except we're talking about a book. Yeah. And in fact, a website. Yeah. New content is the whole deal. Right. Um, and so too in writing. So that's an interesting case where there's been a convergence between content creation of other kinds and novel writing, where, which is suddenly on this sort of serial basis in a way that it didn't have to be, at least, or it didn't seem like it had to be. But if you want to make it in this world, it's good to be a very fast writer. So I have found um, in my own life. <laughs> So it, it gets off to this populist start and it's hard not to have at least one cheer or two cheers, if not three cheers for these folks who like suddenly have a chance to do something uh, that they weren't able to before because they lack connections or uh, what have you. And not like I'm all for that. On the other hand, it's always at the end of the day going to be a corporate populism. And so it's always going to be compromised in advance, you know, uh, by its connection to one corporation, not another. I mean, so Hatchet and all the sort of other huge publishing conglomerates, they're an interesting part of this story. They're not exactly underdogs in my view, although that's the way they've been, that's the way they've tried to pose themselves at various, at various times, interestingly, uh, even though they are in absolutely hugely enormous companies too. Um, so the, the business of authorship, just more broadly, it's pretty complicated. I mean, I know people have said, again, I haven't independently documented this, but people have said that author incomes are, are deflating. Uh, and whether this has, w- w- what the cause of this is, is an interesting, interesting question. Uh, I think that it, it might be as much to do with the collapse of the mid-list in, in conglomerate publishing as it has to do with anything Amazon is doing. Although it has to be said, Amazon really does condition readers to think that 99 cents is a reasonable amount to pay for a novel um, or 2.99 or what have you. This inks- and, and then the question becomes like, how are people supposed to support themselves when literary experience is being valued at that, at that rate? Right. And, and it's worth pointing out that there, these things are also, of course, connected phenomena and sort of the collapse of the mid-list, for example. Um, I mean, in certain ways, the choices that the big five publishers are making, though they're not necessarily underdogs compared to most things, I, you know, compared to Amazon, I would say, of course, everyone is an underdog at this point, except Walmart, maybe. Um, but, you know, it's harder. People might look at you describing certain trends, even in literary fiction, and say, well, that's happening because it's harder to take a risk for a big publisher on a more experimental literary work. And so they, they've they established what does work even within that type of writing. And that is what keeps rising to the top. And that is, Amaz- someone would say, that's Amazon that did that, that made it so much more difficult to take yeah, risks. Uh, yes, all the, with the irony, of course, that because it's an open platform, anyone can publish whatever the hell they want on on KDP. And so... There's no barrier to ent- to the entry of extremely experimental, even audience hostile fiction. And in fact, you know, like in that deepest sea, I'm sure it's there. I learned like, yeah. like, believe me, everything you can think of is already there somewhere. It's just a matter of finding it, which is. 
Totally. Sorry. Yeah. To clarify, I meant for the actual, the sort of existing publishing houses, it's harder for them to take those risks is what I meant. Yeah. So Amazon didn't bring the market to books. First of all, print capitalism has been around for a long time. As Benedict Anderson pointed out, you know, books, if you want to know what's going on in capitalism at any given point, look at the book at any given moment. And, you know, it's a very reliable indicator. Um, the printing press is one of the first machines, uh, right? So so books have always been deeply embedded in the market. Uh, and sure enough, the corporatization of publishing, beginning, say, roughly in the 1980s, is a huge part of the story, too. And certainly it's it's maybe, the, it's no doubt the most important part of the story if you're wondering why the mid-list seems seems to be ailing and, and why even fairly successful mid-list writers might need to be a teacher uh, or have some other form of income, even though they've got seven novels um, that people respect. That doesn't necessarily add up to a living at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, so the last thing I wanted to ask you, you mentioned uh, writers becoming teachers. So your last book was The Program Era, um, in which you looked at how the MFA program has determined or at least influenced what literature in the United States look like looks like post-World War II. Um, so the move to pro- professor writers, um, the cliche refrains that most people have heard, things like show, don't tell, find your voice, write what you know, so on. So what's the relationship? This might seem like an obvious question, but I just I want to get clarity here. What's the relationship between that study and this one? So have we fully, is it that we've passed from the program era to the Amazon era? How do you sort of think about what you're doing here with these different studies? I, I think of them as different, di- different, you know, optic angles of analysis, basically. Um, I mean, I talk about this a little in the book because I wrote a, I, I did, I did, I did write the program era. It's a, uh, uh, And I wanted to sort of coordinate. I mean, the basic way to think of it is, you know, the program era is a book about the rise of the university as a patron of literary art uh, and the various ways it does that by having writers in residence and MFA programs and creative writing instruction and a new path to being a professional writer and making some sort of income uh, and and all of those issues. Basically centered, though, in the rise of the uh, the school to a particular uh, point of importance in literary history. In this study, really what I'm doing is just sort of rotating at 180 degrees so that there's the school as institution. And then in this book, I went for the rawest form of market institution, the corporation, and what it has to say, uh, 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 what it has to sort of show us about what literature is now. So I think of them as, as I I talk about this in the book, there's a way of thinking of Amazon as a successor to the the creative writing program because a lot of people go to creative writing programs because they have this desire to be a writer, right? A published writer. And if that's what you want, you can already do that tonight. You know, right. um, but of course, not that's it's not that simple, of course. So you still have traditional literary culture, which is which is essentially what's at issue in creative writing programs there to an extraordinary extent. They're teaching literary fiction uh, in, in creative writing programs, although, of course, there are exceptions. And then over here on Amazon and Amazonia, it's really about the market being quite present to you as a writer. Uh, and your audience is right there. And so they just seem to me complementary. Um, I, I wanted to entertain the notion of Amazon succeeding from tr- from traditional literary culture, but I'd quickly back off that strong acclaim because clearly they're coexistent 
uh, right. phenomenon. They're just different ways of looking at literature now. One of them a little bit more familiar to us who have done any reading of books in school. Uh, the other one, this sort of Wild West of the uh, uh, of, of the contemporary moment in print capitalism. Mark, thank you so much for coming on Primer. It's been very fun talking to you. Thank you. It's been great to be here. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Primer. I hope you enjoyed the show. Thanks as ever to my producer, Sarah Hurd, to Jacobin Magazine, and to Nate Roos for the music. Talk to you all soon. Bye.